Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Vizient Pharmacy Vision Awards celebrate the values and achievements of our pharmacy members. With me today are three winners of the 2022 Excellence in Public Policy Award, Drs. Amber Zanuski, Steph Luan, and Marie Renauer, all from Yale New Haven Hospital. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence at Vizient, and your program host. Welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on this award. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Gretchen. Tell me about your roles at Yale New Haven Hospital. Hi, I'm Amber Zanuski. I'm the Director of Clinical Services uh, for Yale New Haven Health. I work with unit-based pharmacists across our five-hospital health system, our ambulatory pharmacy team, and I also oversee drug use policy. Hi, I'm Marie Renauer. I'm the Associate Director for Ambulatory Clinical Pharmacy Services. I currently oversee our strategic initiatives to integrate more pharmacists and also more pharmacy technicians into innovative ambulatory practice models. And I'm Steph Luan. I'm the manager of Ambulatory Clinical Pharmacy Services at Yale New Haven Hospital. I've been practicing in and helping to build Ambulatory Clinical Pharmacy Services at Yale for approximately six years now, and I've seen firsthand how policy changes can make a significant difference in the way we deliver healthcare. Well, thank you for sharing your backgrounds. I'm excited to hear your story. You won this award for your public policy work around pharmacy practice. How did you first identify the need? Well, about five and a half years ago, when we really began establishing our pharmacy presence in ambulatory clinics and operationalizing some of our collaborative practice agreements, which in the state of Connecticut are formally called collaborative drug therapy management agreements, we recognized that there were a significant number of administrative barriers in place that were slowing our progress and limiting the number of patients we could support. So we identified four key challenges with how this law was written. There was a requirement for a new signed referral order to be entered for every single patient. So you can see how this may be a challenge when you have a transplant team who wanted our pharmacy team to manage refills for their patient population of over a thousand patients. This just isn't practical. We knew we needed to make changes to permit population health-based agreements that eliminate the need for these individual referral orders. The second key challenge we identified was a requirement to report out to the referring clinician every 30 days. This was initially added in before the creation of electronic medical records. Patients might not want to follow up with the pharmacist every 30 days. Here we knew that we really needed to incorporate the use of the electronic health record. And instead of reporting out every 30 days, maybe documenting in that shared EHR if you have access to it. Our third key challenge we identified was that every responsible clinician was required to sign every single agreement every time it was updated. So we support an anticoagulation service that supports patients cared for by more than 50 clinicians. Every time anything was changed in that collaborative practice agreement, everyone needed to re-sign again and every patient had to be re-referred. So we needed the ability to have a director or other supervising body sign off on behalf of a group of clinicians or on behalf of a group of pharmacists. The fourth and last key challenge that we identified was the statute required a patient-specific protocol to be agreed upon for each patient. Most states and their collaborative practice laws permit pharmacists to reference national and institutional guidelines to support their clinical judgment. Protocols can really eliminate the opportunity to consider patient-specific factors and making individualized decisions regarding our patient care. We needed to make a change to allow more guideline-directed management, to allow room for clinical decision-making and patient-specific care. 
I loved working in ambulatory care and felt that if I wanted to change and improve access to care for our patients, I had to do something about it. So at the time, I engaged the legislative chair of our state society of health system pharmacists. And after a year of learning the ropes, took over that role and really started working with our lobbyists to affect these changes. And it took about three years for us to achieve what we have. I think three years, Steph, to change what was in law 12 years ago and not really applicable to our advanced practice. I would give you kudos that that is in record speed for how laws get passed and updated. But I also wanted to acknowledge Steph at that time, five years ago, you were probably, I don't know if you were still a resident and Steph was our first ambulatory care resident when I was a manager at that time. Between being our first resident, helping implement some of these new collaborative practice agreements, but also transitioning into our very first senior specialist, she really felt the pain as I assigned her responsibilities to operationalize and implement our CDTMs. I really appreciate you, Steph, stepping up and acknowledging where we could really advance our practice through legislative advocacy to make it more feasible for us to expand our scope of practice into many more areas. Five years ago, Steph, you probably didn't see where we were going to be today, but I appreciate you diving in headfirst and being our leader in advocacy. My pleasure. It's been a great learning opportunity for sure. Yes, that really is impressive. And it's fantastic work in record time to overcome those four barriers that you identified. Who are some of the key stakeholders that you partnered with? We knew that we needed to partner with the Department of Consumer Protection. In our state, the Department of Drug Control is the regulatory and licensing body for pharmacists. We partnered with our Connecticut Society of Health System Pharmacists, as well as the Connecticut Pharmacists Association and the other main health system within our state, which is Hartford Healthcare. They played a significant role in helping get, especially the most recent year of our practice changes in place. We also partnered with Senator Jay Maroney in Connecticut, who sponsored and raised both of our bills, the first one in 2021 and the second in 2022. And honestly, once we engaged our governmental relations team at Yale New Haven Hospital or Yale New Haven Health and got some of those team members involved, they really helped us to partner with the Connecticut Hospital Association, our legal counsel to make sure that the language we were including would actually achieve our desired outcome. Once we did that, honestly, everything got a whole lot easier. One of the things that our governmental relations team really helped us with was connecting with other groups, disciplines like nurses and physicians to make sure that they would support or at least not work against what we were trying to change. I'm thrilled to hear that you had the support from those multidisciplinary groups as well. And it sounds like it took a lot of people to, to make this happen. So once you had that team together, what were some of your next steps? As Amber mentioned, we started working with the Medical Society, the APRN Society, really making sure that there would be no groups that were advocating against this bill being passed. So we wanted to eliminate all barriers. That was the advice that we had received from Senator Maroney and from our lobbyists and governmental affairs team. And then really just figuring out what we wanted the language to be in the law, making sure that everyone agreed upon that language, and then gathering and coordinating testimonials in partnership with our other health systems across the state, our team members, really helping our legislators to understand the difference that pharmacists can make in patient care. Because I know a lot of us recognize that I had this conversation very recently with a future classmate of mine who came from Europe where they don't have clinical pharmacy practice thinking that a pharmacist always works in a retail store and they're dispensing medications and that's their role. So a lot of our legislators don't understand that we can help patients quit smoking. We can help them achieve their diabetes goals. We can help them control their high blood pressure. 
when we're able to share some of those patient experience stories, it can help legislators understand, oh, wow, it would be great if we allowed pharmacists to be able to provide care for more of our patients. That's a really key point, Steph. So as we move this work forward, we highlighted that this really is about patients at the end of the day, improving access, providing better care for our patients, rather than trying to advance pharmacist practice, which obviously is part of what we are able to accomplish. That wasn't the primary goal. And I think centering the patient at that work really helped us gain buy-in from stakeholders. And we were really strategic in coordinating the testimonials so that we provided different perspectives and different speakers. We were really fortunate, for example, to have a physician that Harvard Health uh, coordinated with that also spoke on our behalf. That's great to hear. And I agree, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of informing the public about the awesome work that our pharmacists do to take care of our patients. How did this process unfold and what was the result? So really, once Steph had coordinated as the legislative chair with our Society of Health System Pharmacists, we had a template to go from. We were strategic about picking people to testify, and I was honored to be able to testify on behalf of myself personally as a remote practicing pharmacist, but I've had the opportunity to practice under collaborative practice since a resident and in three different states. So I had the opportunity to speak on behalf of myself, but also CSHP. This was my first time providing testimony. It's never too late. It seems intimidating at first, but the work that Steph had done to outline a template, provide some recommendations, be available for feedback. I had previously done letter writing campaigns, but really being able to speak on behalf of myself and my experience, it was really a great experience. And it was over Zoom because we were still, I think, in a surge at that time, I think in 2022 of March. So I got to present to our general law committee. There was a lot of questions and discussions, and I was pleasantly surprised at how welcoming our legislators were to really understand the role of the pharmacist. And it was a great opportunity to highlight to Amber's point, this was not changing scope of practice. That was bolded, underlined in our written testimony. We were coached to highlight that again in our spoken testimony, but really it was about patient access. And in the middle of the pandemic, access to preventative care, to vaccines, pharmacists were really really at a great position then and even more so now to increase access and decreasing the administrative burden to do that on a population base was the right thing to do. Our legislators had really honed in on that and had acknowledged that we were at the right place during the pandemic to expand that role. And that was great coaching provided by Steph in the group. And I really enjoyed providing that testimony. From there, it was all pretty fast. By end of March, it was approved and recommended to go forward. And by July, it was adopted. But what happened in between, I'll turn to my step as far as the specific next steps that went forward, but also the other positives that came out of that testimony and the revisions to the legislation. Yeah, getting this bill passed built up so much momentum for pharmacy practice advancement in the state of Connecticut. I think the first year when we got some very minor things removed, which were like eliminating that 30-day reporting requirement, allowing guideline-directed care to be provided. Those were two of the smaller administrative burdens. But the following year, our senator reached out to us and said, what are the pharmacists looking to do this year? What has been the same in this legislative session where I just learned that a variety of bills were passed that advanced pharmacy practice, including allowing technicians to continue to vaccinate, allowing pharmacists to vaccinate patients now 12 years of age or older for certain vaccinations that are outside of the ACIP guidelines, for example, COVID vaccines, and also giving pharmacists authority 
authority to prescribe hormonal contraceptives. Pharmacists this year were finally added as eligible healthcare workers into an alternative discipline program that our state has, which is a confidential health assistance program for chemical dependency, physical or mental illness, and emotional or behavioral disorders. It's a great time to be a pharmacist in Connecticut because there's so many changes and so much support for these changes. Uh, So I really look forward to seeing what we'll achieve next. How exciting and encouraging that they're now reaching out to you for ideas and next steps to be commended. I'm assuming that it wasn't all smooth sailings. What were some of the challenges that you encountered along the way? So in addition to uh, making sure that we framed our argument in the right way, especially thinking about uh, making sure that we did not propose this as an expansion of pharmacist practice, but rather a reduction in administrative burden and an effort to enhance patient access, we also really tried to work within the existing law rather than making major changes to the existing regulations. It kind of reminds me of when you remodel your house over and over again, the layout's a little funky. It's not exactly what you would have built if you started from scratch, but it ultimately meets your needs. And that's how I would describe the legislation today. We were able to make small changes for the most part in order to work within that existing framework and still accomplish the goals that staff set forth in the beginning. Nice remodeling analogy. I like that. So what are some of the positive impacts you've seen? I think we've seen a number of positive impacts in the short amount of time since the changes have been made, but we're still admittedly almost a year now since those changes were made, working through how to operationalize some of those components at a large scale. But the partnership with our legal counsel and how to frame the language and keep it broad still allows us to function while implementing those new changes and really has allowed us to be flexible in our approach because where we think we can do a global collaborative drug therapy management with a group of endocrinologists, for example, we have various practice models from our community-based practice to our academic practices and various flavors in between of clinician preferences as well. So that flexibility has allowed us where we have a group of clinicians or an individual clinician that are ready for a population-based approach. Our really enthusiastic early adopters were able to operationalize a population-based approach and have a single sign-off by a section chair, for example. But for groups who are newer to collaborative pharmacy practice, want a little more tighter oversight over the patients that are referred for management until they're ready to get to that population-based approach, we're able to really be flexible in the type of collaborative drug therapy management agreement they sign on to. The broad language allows us to, especially with inclusion of advanced practice providers such as nurse practitioners and PAs, allows us to really be more nimble in engaging in agreements with a variety of different care teams where there may not be um, just clinicians on that care teams and maybe partnerships with APRNs and physician assistants. So that's really allowed us to extend our practice to more community-based practices within our health system. We're able to onboard and credential pharmacists and get them signed onto agreements sooner and help patients faster. So increasing that access to patients has something that's really been a positive impact that we proposed while going through testimony and we've seen happen. And I think just overall care team satisfaction by really allowing everyone to practice to the top of their license, we see more engaged team members and that just happier being able to take care of patients and prioritize patients over paperwork. And that's always been our focus, not only for our pharmacists, We were shocked to find out that we had a nurse practitioner, for example, that was ready to transition into a new role. Right as we were starting to introduce a new pharmacist role, we were able to expedite that due to some of these decrease in administrative burden. And that nurse practitioner actually decided to stay on the team um, and works with the pharmacist today. So we've seen those kind of stories play out due to the ability to integrate pharmacists in advanced practice, too. 
We've been really fortunate. Recently, we heard an example of a patient that had care with a pharmacist on our team. She moved to another health system, another physician who did not have a pharmacist supporting their team. She really missed the perks that came with having a pharmacist part of the care team. So she reached out to that pharmacist to understand who she could transfer her care to that pharmacist work with. So she was switching doctors in order to get access to her pharmacist again. It was a really positive feedback for us to hear. It's definitely wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So any advice for pharmacy professionals who want to get involved in this type of work? It does take a lot of time and effort to operationalize. I learned so much about policy and the policy process, more than I ever thought I would learn. But I think one key thing for me was just getting started as soon as possible, making sure to engage government relations early. The first year in 2021, when we raised our first bill, I pretty much asked governmental relations at our organization for permission to advocate on behalf of myself and behalf of our Connecticut Society of Health System Pharmacists. But the second year, we got them involved earlier on and were able to really get their support and insight. And ultimately, we're able to get our health system to advocate on behalf of this bill, which was really impactful for us. I think another thing that Amber alluded to before is just remembering that we're ultimately all working to enhance the provision of high quality patient-centered care. And this really isn't just to advance pharmacy practice. Ultimately, we all should be working towards the same goal of getting the best outcome for the patient. And something that's helped us with that as well that I would encourage others to pursue is including clinician champions to provide testimony and support. I'll also hit on that's been brought up previously, but sharing patient experience stories, getting our legislators to understand truly what the impact of this is. Because if you have a legislator who maybe has a family member who received an organ transplant, they know how complicated it is for their loved one and how many different medications that they're on, but they might not know that there's a pharmacist there who's providing support and guidance and who could provide even more support and help them to achieve some of their health goals. Maybe I'll give a better example than a transplant patient because that's highly not the best example, I guess. But maybe they have a family member who has very complicated diabetes and would really benefit from having a pharmacist meet with them weekly or call them weekly to help titrate their insulin or to help ensure that they're taking the best medications to help them live a happy and healthy life, making sure that they understand what the consequences are if they don't take their medications and why it's so important. That's really great advice. And I know our listeners will appreciate your insights from having already gone through this process. Thank you so much for that. Steph, what are your future plans? We would love to make similar changes in neighboring states. Yale New Haven Health serves patients primarily in Connecticut, but also uh, to a lesser extent in New York and Rhode Island. And we would love to uh, partner with those teams in the states to help bring the benefits of these changes to these other states that we can serve patients across our entire footprint. Great aspirations. Thank you for that. Steph, Marie, and Amber, congratulations again. And thank you so much for joining us to share your thoughts and insights. It's been wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.